This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. It's our Friday Doctor in the House segment today, our first one for the new year. And joining me for that in the studio, my co-host, Dr. George Lee. How are you, George? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm, I'm very good. Uh, it's Friday. The traffic is not so bad out there. And then, and of course, we're talking about important subjects and we've got very important guests with us. Kicking off the year with a very, very serious and significant topic. Indeed. And yes, we do have two great guests joining us today, Professor Dr. Dr. Adiba Kamaru Zaman, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at University Malaya, and Dr. Koo Yongkian, Scientific Officer at the Duke NUS Centre for Outbreak Preparedness down south in Singapore. And, um, you know, we have these two different perspectives today to discuss the medical brain drain problem. Mm. Malaysia, as we have been saying for many years now, and I think perhaps is a refrain you are familiar with as well, George, over your career, mm-hmm. we're losing our doctors, aren't we? Yes, we are. <laughs> um, well, not just losing across the borders, we're also losing, um, you know, across the public and private sectors. Ooh, I don't know if you're going to get <laughs> <laughs> So I think those are very important subjects we're going to talk yeah, about. So really. today, um, we want to talk about what are the factors driving this problem? What is the toll that it's taking? on our healthcare system and then how does that subsequently translate into you know the quality of care that each of us gets so um, we want to hear from you if you perhaps are a healthcare professional who's thinking of moving abroad or you have done so or you have thoughts about what's happening uh, in our healthcare system in terms of the brain drain you can call us at 0377332900 or you can whatsapp us at 018789 and that can be in the form of a text message or a voice note. Prof Adiba and Dr. Ku, thank you so much for joining us today. How are the both of you? Happy New Year, Shari. I'm very well, thank you. Hi, Yukim. Hi, hi, Prof and Shari and Dr. George. Nice to meet you, everyone, and Happy New Year as well. Happy New Year, Good. indeed. Um, happy New Year to George, too. Yes, indeed. We're happy with the two brain canes, George. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> We have to talk about the pool factor. We have, um, we, yes, actually, um, we have from the three of you um, medical professionals today, quite different, uh, sort of, you're you're standing in very different spaces Mm -hmm. in the healthcare system. Uh, So please do bring forth those insights. But Prof, I think the context to this was, you know, there was a media report about emergency departments, especially, particularly in one of our public, major public hospitals being overwhelmed. And in response, to that, you tweeted that um, nothing will be enough to address the problem of these patients sort of um, being more than the capacity of the system if we don't plug the brain drain issue first. Uh, you also tweeted that UM, University of Malaya, where you're at, loses at least 30 of our best and brightest to Singapore. So that was your tweet. Um, but for the purpose of the show today and setting the stage, can you put into perspective what the reality of the brain drain problem is like in Malaysia? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I didn't think that that tweet was going to go far and wide, but you know, I'm I'm glad to have instigated all of your some... tweets. Do <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So, I better be careful. Um, I'm. I think, um, I'm, but I'm glad that, you know, it's it started um, once again a much-needed conversation and focus, particularly now that we have a new administration. Um, so 
the, the context is yes, this is not new, both the um, sort of the brain drain um, and especially the 30 medical students to Singapore, that's, that's not new either. When I first became dean, I, I was told that, you know, Singapore sets up a recruitment agency around about our end of year exams to interview our, our students. And there's literally nothing we can do about it. And bearing in mind that we, you know, the, the, that's, the medical graduates are fully funded almost um, by, uh, you know, the, the public, by public expense. So that's, that's that. But I think what um, the... In initially, I think the um, internal brain drain at the specialist level with the um, evolution of private um, hospitals and, and private care um, was what we um, were experiencing um, in, in sort of the late 80s up until now. And, and that um, has escalated. So on the one hand, we've got this um, serious brain drain internally into private care uh, at the senior level, specialist mm -hmm. um, at the specialist level, and and you hear the oft-mentioned ratio of um, seventy percent of specialists are taking care of thirty percent of um, the population. Now, I'm not sure that 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 ratio is exactly correct, but you you get um, you get the picture. I think what has um, caused group, uh, equally greater concern more recently is um, that even at the mid-level and, and medical officer level, we are seeing both internal brain drain um, to, you know, sort of uh, private GPs before they, they're getting tra uh, trained um, into special to being specialists because of this lack of post and lack, lack of training position or leave medicine completely which is even more tragic um uh and and that appears to have escalated in the last few years but um you know you have the numbers at least from um but do you think we have the numbers nationwide we should we should Mm -hmm. We should, but I don't have. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, as far as um, we can tell, uh, it's it wouldn't be easy to access these numbers, um, Doctor mm -hmm. Ku. Um, you are based in Singapore right now. Uh, I think just just for that a bit of context uh, as to why your perspective will be valuable today. Perhaps you want to share a bit about your career move uh, and what has your experience working in Singapore as a healthcare professional been like? Sure, shall it? Um, first, I just want to say that I'm not from UM, nor I'm one of the bright and brightest there. So. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I, I can only speak from my own experience and I think everybody, um, every individual has a different set of considerations when they want to leave or whether they want to stay. Um, but certainly in my experience, um, I moved to Singapore about um, five, six years ago, 2017. I've been serving um, in KKM close to 10 years prior to that, um, doing various um, clinical specialties as well as moving out of Klang Valley to do primary health care in, in, uh, in the other areas of uh, Malaysia. Um, but I think um, 
it's been it's been all right, I guess. You know, I came here looking for new opportunities outside of clinical medicine. I found a job in a local public hospital doing mostly safety and quality work. I'm looking at um, hospital level um, procedural outcomes as well. I think um, it, it, it broadens the perspective about healthcare for me, um, not just in, in terms of clinical management, but also some administrative and management work. And then I subsequently moved to a new role this year in, in academia doing uh, global health work. Was it pull um, then for you to move to Singapore or were there push factors as well? I think there are probably more push factors than pull factors. Um, definitely uh, one of the biggest push factors would be um, opportunities in career progression. I think during my years, um, I was not a contract officer. I was actually a permanent uh, medical officer, uh, but I was unable to enter the department of my preference, even after multiple tries, multiple transfer requests, etc. And I mean, I understand, uh, and it's understand given, given the service first requirement, and then I did not uh, feel too badly about it. I went on to serve. I went on outside Clang Valley to serve in a primary healthcare clinic. But I think some uh, clearer path or some certainty would have been appreciated. Um, you know, at least you have, at least the, the medical officers um, can plan um, some sort of pathway. You know, there, there are some you know, decision factors they can they can take into consideration before um, moving out or stay. Uh, but of course, uh, several other factors like family commitments, I think around the same time when I was thinking of leaving was actually uh, my daughter was born. So of course, that gave me a very different perspective and mm-hmm. probably one of the tipping points of my decision. Mm-hmm. Prof Adiba, you mentioned, um, you know, there were several stages of medical career that people leave. I mean, one of them is immediately after they graduate. And then for Dr. Ku, obviously, it's 10 years after serving and he decides to leave. I and mean, which one is more typical that you observe, you know, at early stages of their career that being lured into, uh, you know, across the border down to the causeway or, you know, later on when the push factor comes in because of lack of uh, work opportunities in Malaysia? Yeah, George, I think, um, like I said in the past, I think because uh, training opportunities um, by and large were uh, a lot more accessible when, when we didn't have this massive output of, of medical graduates that, you know, the, apart from consideration of um, where you want to be and all that. So there, there was always a job, in, in other words, you know, mm. whether it's a training position or not, at least you know, you're a medical graduate, you, 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 you can be almost guaranteed that you will get a job of, with, with the public sector. Hence, a lot of parents were pushing, I think, um, their children to do medicine because you kind of be guaranteed to have a job. But in the last few years, because of um, the, uh, the, the increase in the rapid increase in number of new med- medical graduates, but uh, the, the not the same number of were available mm-hmm. in the public sector, then we we got into this um, situation where more people, be, more medical graduates were being produced than we were able to absorb. Hence, the delay in, in, in entry into housemanship, delay into uh, MO-ship and into training positions. So now what we're seeing is this people getting frustrated and leaving at a more junior level, whereas in the past... Um, you know, they would do their masters, they would do their MRCP, et cetera, et cetera. And then in their sort of early to mid forties would leave or um, just before retirement kind of thing into the private sector. Mm-hmm. Are we so over now we've that got bo- two, two kind of... Um, Both extremes. 
Yeah, we've got two leakages. Yeah, mm -hmm. are we over that bottleneck now? I mean, obviously, we heard about um, many house officers, you know, taking gap years to one or two years doing grab driving. You know, I, I personally came across um, one of our colleagues. I actually had to employ a medical student to be his driver, and then while he's waiting for a post, is that bottleneck over now? I won't say it's completely over, but it's eased a little bit. Mm -hmm. So in a way, with other countries kind of like uh, absorbing these uh, um, the excess number of medical professions that we churn out, wouldn't that be a way that they're relieving the number of, I know it is a brain drain, but you know we can't, obviously that bottleneck needs to be solved at some point. Absolutely, Josh. And, and, you know, there's no two ways about it. What we need is more money and more posts, right? But the, the thing is, um, governments, ministries of finance tend to look at these salaries as cost rather than investment or, or worse, as a loss in return, uh, you know, as a negative return on investment. Here, here we are training at, at UM um, between 150 to, what, 200 uh, medical students at, anyway, between five. 100,000 to 750, to, uh, to possibly a million ringgit per, um, since we, we're on BFM, I, I'll put it into, into dollars and cents a little bit, per medical graduate. Mm. And, you know, we're losing them to Singapore, to UK or, or wherever. And, of course, Singapore, UK only say they want to take, you know, graduates from XY universities. And, and so, hence that concern that we're losing the best and brightest. So we'll continue this conversation. So it's not just numbers; it's mm. also quality. And uh, the fact that we have, we as a country, have invested in these people because, yeah, but the medical education at at public institutions um, heavily subsidised. And and the other way to look at it, and this was actually, um, you know, I was I was invited to do a uh, commentary for The Lancet not so long ago on, on medical brain drain. And I came across this, um, this paper which modelled um, uh, the cost of brain drain, medical brain drain. It's not just the, the cost that I just spoke about in terms of the cost of training, but when you compute the um, poorer level of care because you've lost specialists, you've mm -hmm. lost, um, you know, trained people, the, the modeling was done in uh, countries like, I think it was Nigeria, certainly South Africa and India. And we're talking about loss in terms of billions of ringgit because mm -hmm. of increased mortality, increased mm -hmm. in, you know, hospitalization, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's not a trivial matter. I no, yeah. agree. We cannot continue the way we are. Yeah, let's continue this conversation after the break. I believe there are more push factors that can uh, we can still discuss. Um, but we are talking about the brain drain among medical professionals today, particularly among doctors. Although we do know that it's a severe problem in the nursing profession as mm -hmm. well. Um, losing our nurses again to Singapore to the Gulf countries historically um, has been. Uh, 
uh, tradition as well. So we are discussing today the problems, uh, uh, the, the factors driving this medical brain drain problem with Professor Dato Dr. Adiba Kamaro Zaman, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at University of Malaya and Dr. Ku Yongkin, Scientific Officer at the Duke NUS Centre for Outbreak Preparedness in Singapore. We'll be right back, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon, welcome back to Health and Living. It's Friday afternoon, it's our Doctor in House segment. My co-host with me in the studio, Dr. George Lee, Consultant Urologist. We're speaking today to Professor Dato Dr. Adiba Kamaro Zaman, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at University of Malaya, and Dr. Ku Yong Kian, Scientific Officer at the Duke and US Centre for Outbreak Preparedness. We're discussing the medical brain drain problem. What's driving our um, young as well as senior doctors away, not only from our public health care system, but from the country altogether, sometimes mm-hmm. even from the profession altogether. Yeah, it? it's like, you know, quitting medicine, like what Professor Adiba said. So, um, Dr. Ku, if you have any thoughts that you could share in terms of other push factors that you've heard of as well from the fraternity, um, because for you, lack of you know opportunities within the, the, the career progression um, was one. Uh, what else has surfaced among uh, young as well as some perhaps more senior doctors? Well, I think over the the couple of recent years, we we come across a lot of um, complaints or issues around uh, the working environment, um, how conducive are working environments for young doctors, especially um, the lower levels, uh, junior doctors, housemanships. So I think um, that is something that we really ought to look at. Um, you know, people always say that it's because of the system and that that's how the system is. But then again, we are the system, you know, uh, doctors, senior and juniors, we are the system. I think we can do a lot better. Um, you know, we can, I think young doctors especially will feel quite um, stressed and aggrieved because of the uh, stressful environment, the high workload environment. And if they do not really feel part of the team, and they do not have ownership over the work they do, they, they often get will, will get pushed out and get disillusioned by the work. So I think... Um, from from a perspective of a senior doctor, maybe a more experienced doctor, um, creating that conducive environment is, is quite important for, for us to retain our workforce as well. And, you know, Prof and George, I'd like to hear from the both of you because uh, when that issue gets brought up, um, it always comes with the flip side of younger doctors just can't take it these <laughs> days. And this is the way it's done, right? Um, what are your thoughts? A- especially as you're both educators as well. Um, George, you want to? Well, I think the the old ways of thinking about, you know, throwing you in a deep end, uh, I don't think that is something that's constructive anymore because... On one hand, you um, kind of make and break a, uh, a, a junior um, trainee. On the other hand, if there are um, collateral damage, there will be lives of patients. You know, obviously, safety of patients come into this. So I don't take that as an argument that uh, sometimes people will just say, right, you know, they, they're not cut out to be. Because in many, many countries, and uh, the more structural trainings actually, you know, protecting the hours and making ensures that um, doctors are well-rested and lots and lots of uh, support, mentorships. And all these are the constructive way to train the doctors rather than all styles of, you know, seeing you sink or swim. Yeah. Prof, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, George and I have the vintage of, uh, you know, the the 48-hour shifts with no meals and no sleep. 
But I, I, I certainly went through that. And I, I must say that I nearly drove myself off the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne as a result of that one day. And another day nearly drove my, my sister and I off the Tullamarine Freeway, if any of you are <laughs> uh, familiar with Melbourne at all. So it's not something I recommend. On top of that, I think medicine has become a lot more complicated and a lot more litigious. Um, and so it, it, you know, and, and, and we, we cannot do, keep doing those same things, those negative um, sort of ways of doing things just because, um, you know, we, we, we used to. were brought up on it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, like- you know, I, I certainly don't recommend it. And uh, we definitely need to, to create a more conducive environment. The problem is the more, the, the, the more people that leave, the more difficult the environment becomes, both at the senior level, you know. So instead of having three or four of me, um, there's only me left, for example, mm-hmm. and I will need to take on the load of the, the other three, you know, that puts me at a, a higher stress level, then that translates into bad behavior and then it becomes a vicious cycle. Yeah. Dr. Ku, um, you'd like to add something? Yeah, I think it's always very curious, at least in my mind, that you know, medicine has progressed, modern medicine has progressed leaps and bounds, and we are keen to move on to new ways of treating patients, but we're not very keen on uh, new ways of training our younger colleagues. So, so that's always a bit of a paradox for me. But I think um, the profession itself is also unique in the sense that we, we rely on um, traditional ways of education through lectures, um, um, clinical teaching, etc. But also, it's a lot of apprenticeship, I think, um, from senior to junior doctor. So I think that complicates the, the working um, dynamics a little bit more as well. If uh, any of you listening are healthcare professionals, whether you're in Malaysia or um, you know, and, and you're perhaps even considering the idea or you've heard of friends uh, moving abroad, leaving public health uh, sector, please call us um, to share your stories. 03-777-32900. You can also WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Um, remuneration, is that a push factor? Um, Prof, what do you think? Or oh, pull factor on the other side. Uh, on the other side, <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. I, I'd be lying to say that if if, if it wasn't, you know. Um, but often it's not the only factor. Um, having said that, when I was dean and was doing um, exit interviews with um, those the mid level um, specialists who would leave very soon after they've um, got their training. I would say, I mean, they would say, you know, we love, we love the work here. Maybe this is because they were seeing me. I don't know. <laughs> they would say, you know, we, we love the combination of uh, clinical care, um, teaching and research, but you're not paying us enough. Um, and we have to start worrying about our children who are going into well, primary school. It's not so bad, but secondary school and university. And we want to put them into, you know, private either secondary school or um, tertiary education, and we can't do it on, on the salary that, that you give us. So not me, but the salary that UMMC gives, UM gives us. So um, that, that definitely um, is a consideration for sure. And I think it's been made worse by this need to worry about private school and private um, tertiary education for their children because, you know, everyone wants to give their best for the kids, right? 
Um, and so it's it's hard to kind of counter that argument. That that because probably of opens the concern about our our education. education system. That's a whole other conversation, uh-huh. another yes. can yes, of worms. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Doctor Ku, was that part of your considerations? Obviously, you know, you um, you have a child at the time that you make the decisions. Uh, was that uh, part of your um, your considerations to be attracted to Singapore so that uh, your kid will have um, you know a different for um, education in Singapore? Well, my daughter is only five this year. This oh, okay. year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I haven't thought that far o- yet. Obviously, I mean, that, that's um, why the question popped up. Is like, uh, was that a pull factor for you to consider, uh, you know, to make that move uh, for the benefit of the next generation? Yeah. But I think as a parent, it's probably at the back of your mind. You just have to, um, I'm sure in, in the way I processed it, it's probably okay. it came out during conversations with my family, my wife, etc. Um, but yeah, I think I think that would definitely be one of the the factors into the decision making for many for many doctors as well. Prof, you know, I I come back to the fact that we're now losing um, the young medical graduates, um, uh, the the young medical officers, right? And um, it's one thing to say we don't have enough specialists and the, those the senior, super experienced doctors in the system. It's um, a different matter when we are talking about uh, this this foundation that we should be building, and, and they are crumbling at that point. What? do we stand to lose um, in the entire system when we have um, these young doctors leaving the system and the country? What is the important role that they play for us? Well, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge that they actually form the backbone of the public health system. You know, you go to any hospital, you go to any clinic, you go to the medical officers are the ones that are doing the the you know the garage, ground. You know everything, everything, and um, and and look at how hard they work during COVID nineteen pandemic, for instance. Us specialists swan in and swan out, you know, and and bark orders and 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 for the most part. But you know, you know what I mean. Uh, on a day to day basis, they are the backbone of um, the health system. So, and you've heard, of, you've seen a few. Um, I think in the last couple of days, uh, how the shortage, um, you know, then, then like I, what I said before, then the, the vicious cycle of those left behind having to, um, to do more work and which then affects the overall quality of care. But, but on the, on the other side, they, they form the next generation of specialists. So if we're already losing them at the stage, who's going to um, be left behind, um, to take on that role. And on the note of losing them, we have Dr. Ferdows who messaged in to ask how many of our doctors are actually leaving Malaysia, what percentage? And I think I I did bring this up earlier and, um, you know, uh, at least in the UM alone, it's um, 30, at least 30 a year. That's to Singapore. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's more than that, actually. Yeah, that's at least, right? And and we don't, we don't have a clear... So that's significant. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we don't have a clear enough picture, um, perhaps um, not easily accessible information and data about how deep uh, this this fissure is. Um, Dr. Ku, you know, I think 
in some of the narratives that we hear about when this kind of problem gets brought up, um, you can see uh, some quarters putting the blame on the individual um, doctors themselves who make the decision to leave. Um, what kinds of judgments perhaps have you heard being placed on the, the levers, so to speak, whether for yourself or, or generally? And are these judgments fair? Well, <laughs> well you're I, put I on the spot, uh, Dr. Ku. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's a good question, though. Um, I think certainly that there are a lot of conversations on, on individual decisions to leave Malaysia. You know? um, I think that's quite common and quite natural, I think, and probably not unfair for people to, to question. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, many, many of us, um, to be fair, do not really want to leave the system. Um, I think I think I can safely say that many of us quite enjoy the jobs, our work in, in the Ministry of Health, I think. Um, um, but like I say, you know, um, that's because of all the other factors around, the push and pull factors. Some of it are personal decision, but a lot of it are also circ circumstances, you know, and because of this mix of um, push and pull factors, we, uh, we, you know, we are not really given a choice for some, you know. At the end of the day, um, we still have to put uh, food on the table. We have to think about families. You know, we have to think about um, where do we want to to spend our our career time in career in. So I think um, uh, while I do not um, blame them for asking these questions to us, but I think um, they are they are they also must understand our considerations for for leaving the system. And and I guess where what is it you want out of your career, right? Medicine is a profession that people go into or, or people who, who choose to pursue it. Um, there is so much at stake for each of you in terms of why you did this and why, what you want to get out of um, the your entire career. Um, I think we'll go for a quick break and I want to come back to... I guess just just postulate, you know, um, Prof, you already did uh, share a bit of modelling in terms of what would be the cost to countries, um, uh, theoretically at least, um, you know, if this this kind of problem persists. So let's just uh, unpick unpack that a little bit uh, when we come back from our next break. Um, it's our Doctor in House segment today. We're discussing brain drain in the medical profession uh, with my co-host, Dr. George Lee, and our guest, Professor Dato Dr. Adiba Kamaro Zaman, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the University of Malaya, and Dr. Ku Yong Kian, Scientific Officer at the Duke and US Centre for Outbreak Preparedness in Singapore. We'll be right back on BFM 8. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik, for our Doctor in the House segment today with my co-host, Dr. George Lee. We're discussing the medical brain drain and what exactly is the problem? What are the factors driving um, young as well as senior doctors away from our public health system as well as from the country? Um, and perhaps uh, what are, were some factors that have pulled them away as well, right? There are mm -hmm. push and pull factors involved here. And um, I uh, wanted to get each of your thoughts um, Prof. Adiba and um, Dr. Ku, um, what are each of your concerns if we continue down this trajectory um, without intervening? I mean, um, this is not um, the show to talk about solutions just yet. We're going to continue that conversation next week. But I guess um, a bit of um, putting the fire under our behinds, <laughs> yes. so to speak. Um, how bad will this problem get? Prof, you already talked about 
you know, the cost to the healthcare system, to uh, the compromising of quality of care. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah, and, and I, I talked about the cost in, in dollars and cents uh, as well, right? So, um, you know, the, the, the concern is, of course, um, also the changing um, sort of a disease pattern in the country. Uh, in terms of um, the aging population, which means that we will probably need um, more healthcare professionals, not not just doctors and nurses, mm-hmm. but uh, of other um, healthcare professionals as well that we've not um, uh, touched on. Um, you know, we we've got this constant threat of the next pandemic, and then we have this. Um, already with us, this huge problem of um, of non-communicable disease, namely diabetes, obesity, that's going to translate very soon into another big tsunami of people with end-stage renal failure, needing dialysis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, we are talking about the here and now, where mm. we're already losing um, healthcare professionals for. Um, for, for the current health conditions. But if we look into the future, I think, you know, although uh, Jung started off by saying um, uh, medicine has improved so much, correct. But um, in, in the Malaysian setting, we've also got these this problems um, that we haven't really begun to deal with uh, effectively, i.e. the NCDs. And this constant, like I said, this constant threat of the next, well, we, we still have to deal with the current pandemic, but mm-hmm. all the experts say we have to, well, Jung's expertise in this and be prepared for the next pandemic. So, you know, we, we at the moment, it seems like we're treading water mm. um, for the current condition. We haven't even started talking about what's looming in front of us, which plus climate change and, and all of those things um, that we need to be prepared for. And at the rate we're going, it's going to be going to be treading water very, very strongly. Mm. Dr. Ku, your thoughts? I think um, what Prof said is, is absolutely correct. I think there will be a snowball effect um, from this um, brain drain or this reduced capacity starting from um, locally at the institutional level where there's um, longer waiting times, poor, less optimum care, less optimum healthcare, but also again, um, it, it snowballs to um, productivity of the people because you know the, the economy really relies on the health of the nation, you know, and if you don't have healthy people in the in the workforce doing the correct work and attracting the talents to do the work, um, then again, you know, everything else will just uh, pile on. And I think if we we wait um, any longer to to address this, it will only get worse and and uh, get harder to to correct in the future. So cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking Oops. about like food security <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Happy New Year. Year. No, well, you know, we over the year, um, last year we were talking about food security and how individual countries are protecting their supply of medicine, supply of food. And this is clearly something it's in front of us that we're hemorrhaging doctors and, you know, not really 
prepared and might get caught um, off guard uh, whenever something else strikes again, mm. right? Um, so I want to read this message from Anthony, a listener. Um, we are ultimately talking about systemic issues and policy failure. How do we reverse this? And is this something that can be solved with a few policy fixes or are we looking at major restructuring that will require, say, 10 years of political stability and competency to reverse? Maybe just um, sort of a broad thoughts first and I think when we continue the second part of our conversation with Prof Adiba next week, we will have um, more time to delve into details but um, what do you think reversing uh, something like this uh, is it policy failure, is it policy fixes that we can sort of, um, you know, slap the band-aid on, Prof? I think there uh, is is both there, there needs to be some quick fixes possible quick fixes, um, and naturally that's going to involve money, but also putting in systems like uh, what Jung was alluding to, you know, um, having a clear pathway to training and and, um, being for the junior doctors to be sure that they can get training, they, you know, there there is a future for them. Uh, And and that by working together with JPA, MOH, MOHE, I'm quite confident that that can be addressed, not in its entirety, but at least, you know, unclog some of the potential training posts um, that are already there, but not um, not utilised uh, effectively. Mm. Prof. Adiba, through, I think... a much more clearer training system. Mm, I think mm-hmm. I agree with uh, what you said earlier on, that um, if we change the mindset and looking at this not losing X amount of money, but actually investing in people, and I really mm. think that, that that is a good way to kind of change the whole mindset and change the whole culture about training doctors is investing in people, investing in our future. is not about mm-hmm. dollars and cents. Yeah. And then, of course, there needs to be a lot more long-term, mid to long-term changes that that need to happen. For example, and and this has been also addressed uh, or spoken to at nauseam in terms of uh, the number of medical schools, um, et cetera. cetera. In in other words, there needs to be a proper planning of um, the human resource for Mm. health for Malaysia. Um, But yeah. So the, the short answer is yes, I think there are some things that can be done in the short term, um, but quite a lot of things um, have to be addressed uh, in mid to long term. I mean, the the I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom, right? Um, we just need to be creative. We keep we keep sort of uh, looking at um, specialists, for instance. What we need to fix is really at the earlier stage. We need to have more primary care you know, more well-trained primary care. We need to involve the GPs, continuing medical education. We need to have better community care, uh, task shifting, but then we're also losing nurses. So uh, task shifting to nurses and and others. Um, So I I think there are, uh, at the systems level, there are things that can be done so that, you know, there's better primary and prevention care that, that we so in, in so that we're not you know having to deal with it always at the hospital level mm. if we do preventive medicine and primary care medicine 
a lot better than what we are doing right now. Dr. Koo, so what, those are some of the systemic changes that also need to go hand in hand. And, and Dr. Koo, what do you think, uh, you know, when people talk about major structural reforms, some people may argue, yeah, but we need to make sure X, Y, Z is there first. Uh, and we need to have, like um, our listener Anthony said, maybe do we need to wait for political stability? Do we need to build up competencies? Uh, what do you think? I think um, that, that, like Prof said, um, there are short-term and long-term changes that we can do, but also different levels. Policy level is definitely one one major thing that we, we have to look at for. But again, at every level, I think everybody really should chip in to, to you know, it starts with ourselves. I think if we treat our younger doctors better, you know, if we create a conducive environment to, for them to work, uh, include them as part of a team, you know, I mean, healthcare is always about teamwork, right? So I think you know, once you create that kind of environment, they'll be more willing to listen they're more willing, more willing to, to put in the work and then we engage with policymakers to see how do we then um, continue this you know environment into the wider scale um, correct uh, correct manpower planning correct funding correct resources so I think um, starting small um, is a good way to start but of course uh, we have to really look into the future as well. <clears throat> We have Ching who messaged in to ask, on the flip side, how many have left the country and then come back? Mm-hmm. Uh, and would it would they be more accepted within the system uh, <laughs> after coming back from working overseas? And George and uh, Prof, <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah, we started the show talking about brain gain, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Actually, while listening to Ku, you know, all those issues... I must say that kind of reminiscent with how I was when I was in the UK. You know, at every stages of our medical career, we we choose to be in a nice location, in a better job. There's always limitation. There's always a bottleneck. You always have to put in the extra, um, you know, hours and extra time. But however, when you don't get it, you always go to a greener pasture somewhere else. You know, when I was um, thinking about what exactly triggered that, you know, return, and I must say, you know, there, there were lots of opportunity. By far, probably something that will bring back um, our, you know, experts from abroad is home. Home is home, right? And then so coming back home, it's probably one of the better enticement. And the second thing, actually, when you have a system where it is a little bit, um, I would use in air quotes, haphazard, let's say in Malaysia, then you will probably take this as an opportunity to learn from what you gain from abroad and bring back to actually get the whole system consolidated. And that was the second enticement that actually brought me back. Prof Adiba, what, what, what were yours, kind of top three uh, reasons why just very quickly because yeah. we have another interesting point that I want okay, to get so yeah. I, I had to stop GPA you know from, from sort of chasing after me because I kind of disappeared <laughs> yes. after my my uh, medical graduation and oh, then dear. I stayed on right um just joking, but sort sort of they like, where have you been? And then of course home and family and um yeah I think what what for me also that I wanted to start a family and have a family. Um my young children be brought up in Malaysia in the in the Malay Muslim tradition. Um and the opportunity to to be part of nation building um, was was also quite um, quite a, a thing mm, for me. A pull for you. And I, I kind of had that that you know um, I always have the uh, opportunity if I don't like it to go back to Australia. So I but then you know there was no question. But Dr. Cook, you wanted to add. 
No, after listening to Prof, I might want to go home straight now. Oh. <laughs> Nation building. <laughs> yeah, but no, I think um, I think uh, but I do not want to trivialize the brain drain. I think there's also some benefits. Uh, it's not a complete. Uh, loss there is net loss agreed uh, but there, there's not complete loss I think um, from my interactions with Malaysians here uh, even in my institution there are a lot of Malaysians here and you know we do there contribute. are a lot of Malaysians in Singapore yeah, that's yeah. Right. Well, I mean you throw also, one stone you probably get five on the road uh, <laughs> sorry um, yeah um, you, uh, we, we interrupted yeah. you yeah so I think um, there are also ways that, that we try to contribute maybe subconsciously maybe consciously you know in terms of sharing resources gathering to do global or regional projects, etc. So there are some, a lot of communications, even in my line of work, we are also, I'm trying to work with Malaysian partners, etc. So uh, while I, again, I do not want to trivialize the brain drain, I think uh, there's also different ways that uh, the Malaysians outside of Malaysia are contributing back to, to nation building as well. I'm, sh- I'm sure you get scenarios of many people, um, you know, uh, progress really well to a senior level in Singapore and actually have intention to come back to Malaysia as well, right? Yes, I, I think so. Yeah, and a couple of um, also again, couple of um, people I know that are plan plan to head back home after a while. You know, again, like you said, you know, it's, it's home after all, and you know, we have our roots are always back in Malaysia. I mean, the food is better and things like that. Ooh. But of course, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's not a fact. <laughs> um, but but so you know, in many cases, it may not actually be a complete drain. We're just talking about um, you know uh, transitions and gaining different experiences. But a very good message from Anal who messaged in um, doctors want to further their career with postgrad qualifications, as we've heard from Ku as well. However, the closed system of entry into master's programs with gatekeepers, um, i.e. heads of departments, acting unfairly to crimp the progress of juniors is a major hurdle that must be removed. And Anil says you must open up the system and let each doctor advance on basis of their own merits. And I'm guessing this is coming from uh, a place of experience uh, for Anil. Thanks for sharing that. Any thoughts quickly from either of you? Would you like to weigh in on that? So one of the things um, that I did in the last four or five years um, of my deanship was try to try and improve and strengthen the specialist training program through a curriculum revision and trying to bring together the master's program, which is handled by the universities and the parallel program, which KKM does. And what we tried to do was to harmonize these two programs, have a structured system, have a, have clear entry and exit criteria, etc. cetera. Um, this is still a work in progress. And I think what we really need to, to improve that whole training um, pathway for our junior doctors is to have a... Um, a, a, a combined Ministry of Education, Ministry of Higher Education and Ministry of Health committee that oversees um, this, this whole training program. At the moment, it's, it's, we still seem to be working in silos um, to everyone's detriment. Uh, I don't want to bore you with the, with the details, but um, that's what I meant earlier. But there are still lots of things or a few things that we can do to make, to, to improve things even without sort of big, big injections of funds. Of course, we need that too. We always so need improving, funds. Mm. So, yeah, so improving the postgraduate training program is 
is very much needed and it has to start with everyone working together like what you said. Mm. Um, those details will not be boring. Um, we will in <laughs> fact try to get into them in mm. the second part of this discussion next Friday and uh, I think linked to that we will try to answer one of our listeners who wanted to know what's the ministry leadership doing about our uh, ministry of health leadership doing about this you know and this is not a new problem so what have they been trying to do um, over the years as well so next week we'll be looking at what are our options to put a stop to the brain drain uh, whether we should be looking to other countries you know if other countries are poaching our doctors should we be trying to poach doctors from other <laughs> and and uh, it becomes a circular argument prof is shaking her head so we'll find mm-hmm. out we'll find out um you know why why not um next friday that the 13th of january at four o'clock as well on health and living my guests today have been professor dato dr adiba kamaro zaman professor of medicine and infectious diseases at university of malaya and dr ku yong kian scientific officer at the duke and u.s center for outbreak preparedness in singapore thank you so much for speaking to us today and my co-host dr george lee this has been health and living on bfm 89.9 Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.